The war in Ukraine has ushered in a new era of global politics. It has also ushered in a new political witch hunt against dissenting voices. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking to Ben Norton. He's an investigative journalist based in Latin America. He's the editor of the independent news website, Multipolarista, which you can find at multipolarista.com. Ben Norton, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's one of my favorite shows, so it's always a real pleasure being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining Ben. You made a big hit in mainstream media in the past few weeks. I, I saw your picture very prominently displayed on the website of the New York Times, and, and it had a big red line through it. And I thought, what happened to Ben? Anyway, it's an amazing story, and it's the subject of what we want to talk about today, the new witch hunt. The Ukraine war has ushered in a new witch hunt. We've talked a lot about the new Cold War against China and Russia, but the old Cold War had a very terrible witch hunt against dissenting voices, especially those on the left. And people on the left, especially leaders of the Communist Party, and earlier the Socialist Workers Party during World War II, but the Communist Party very notably became the target of the witch hunt after 1945 when the United States basically started a new aggressive policy against its former ally, the Soviet Union. They had been allies together against fascism, against Nazi Germany in World War II. The leaders of the Communist Party were sentenced to long prison terms in 1949 and 1950. Members of Hollywood, the Hollywood Ten, driven from Hollywood, educators, cultural figures, sports figures, Paul Robeson most notably, passports taken away, socialism was canceled, dissent was canceled after World War II. And the New York Times had that big red line through your face, they wanna cancel you, Ben, and not just you, they wanna cancel dissenting voices. The article is entitled, China's Echoes of Russia's Alternate Reality Intensify Around the World. And apparently, Ben, your crime was that you went on a English language Chinese international TV network and you dared to say something that the article calls a conspiracy theory when you said that there was a coup d'etat. Yes, a coup d'etat in February 2014 in Ukraine. Anyway, you must have been quite surprised when you saw this story. And again, your sin was that you said these conspiracy theories on a Chinese TV network. Anyway, let's get your thoughts. Well, Brian, I'm glad you used the term cancellation because, you know, in the U.S., conservatives constantly complain about this idea of cancel culture. They say, oh, 
We can't say anything racist or sexist anymore without consequences. I mean, no, we've been saying, when I say we, anti-war journalists and voices and, and organizers have been saying for years that the real cancel culture is the U.S. government-backed cancellation of people who oppose war and empire. We saw this for years with people who were canceled for opposing Israeli apartheid. We saw this with people who were canceled for opposing the Iraq war, the war in Syria, the war in Libya. And now, of course, we have the new Cold War and the war hysteria in Washington and Europe is in overdrive. It's hysterical over Russia and Ukraine. And anyone who dares to speak out is once again seeing that the real cancel culture is not, you know, these culture war distractions that Republicans like to talk about. No, the real cancel culture is U.S. government-backed and media cancellation of people who dare to challenge imperialism. And, you know, you mentioned the important historical context, Brian, of McCarthyism. And I think it's so important to understand that that, that McCarthyism, the House and American Activity Committee, all of that apparatus was built in the first Cold War, and especially at the beginning of the Cold War when it started really heating up. And we're in a new Cold War. And of course, this is not the first example of it. We can talk, Brian, about the attempt to cancel and effectively censor Russian media, also Iranian media, and increasingly Chinese media in the United States. This is a campaign that goes back several years. It's not new. But we see that these Western media outlets that are very closely linked to the U.S. government, like the New York Times, which has a revolving door in many ways with the U.S. government, its editors have admitted that they send stories to U.S. officials to review to make sure they don't threaten so-called national security before they are published. We also know that, that James Risen, who was a former New York Times columnist, he wrote this big expose in The Intercept talking about how close the New York Times is to the U.S. government and how New York Times editors really work, collaborate closely and voluntarily with U.S. government officials. So we can see the New York Times as kind of unofficial de facto state media. And we see that now it has been expanding that dragnet and trying to go after and cancel any journalist, any activist, any organizer speaking out against war and empire. And of course, using the new Cold War as justification for doing that, claiming that we're supposedly too sympathetic to China or Russia, or we dared to do an interview with a Chinese or a Russian media outlet. And Brian, you mentioned that I did an interview with a Chinese media outlet. They also cite in that New York Times hit piece, an interview that I did with a friend of ours, Lee Camp, on RT, before RT America was closed, largely because of all of this pressure and censorship led by the US government. And it's incredible that the New York Times quoted they cited that interview because one, that was an interview I did with Lee Camp, an American, an activist, a comedian who has nothing to do with Russia. He just had a show on RT that was completely independent and he had editorial control over it. And furthermore, the interview that I did with Lee Camp was actually on February 23rd. It was the day before Russia invaded Ukraine, although it was published on the 25th. And the New York Times cites that interview as supposed evidence that I'm linked to Russian media and the Russian government in some way and spreading this conspiracy theory and this nonsense that's supposed to justify the Russian invasion that happened after I did the interview. 
So, I mean, we see so many layers of hypocrisy and lies. And what they argue in this article is that you said that there was, well, I'll read it. He, meaning you, Ben Norton, red line through your face. He, Ben Norton, first explained the conspiracy theory on RT, although it was later picked up by the Chinese state media and tweeted by accounts like Frontline. In a March interview, which China's state broadcaster CCTV trumpeted as an exclusive, Mr. Norton said the United States, not Russia, was to blame for Russia's invasion. Now, that's not a quote. That's just the New York Times talking about this. In the article, Ben, they accuse you of saying that there was a coup d'etat in Maidan Square in the center of Kiev in February 22nd, 2014. And they described this as a Russian conspiracy theory. Anyway, what did you say and what happened in Maidan? Well, there, there's just so many layers of dishonesty in this New York Times piece. And of course, the most ridiculous claim is that the US-backed coup in Ukraine in 2014 is a conspiracy theory. I mean, we have so much evidence for this. For instance, in 2014, there was a leaked phone recording of Victoria Nuland. Who is Victoria Nuland? She is now the third in command of the State Department. At that time, in the Obama administration, she was the Assistant Secretary of State for Eurasian Affairs. So this is a very important diplomat, a very important State Department official. And in this leaked phone call, you can hear her speaking with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and they're discussing who the, the leaders of the post-coup government in Ukraine will be. And of course, immediately after the coup on February 22nd, a few days later, the exact person that she named calling him Yats, Yats is our guy, Yats Yenyuk is his full name, but she shortened it because it shows how close of a friend this guy was, Yats Yenyuk. Yats Yenyuk became prime minister immediately after the coup, which is exactly what they were talking about in this phone call. This is a smoking gun. This is undeniable evidence that the U.S. government was behind the scenes pulling the strings to make sure that after the coup, their assets would be in charge. And this is, of course, is by no means the only instance of this. I wrote a response to the New York Times and I listed just a handful of the, the U.S.-backed coups in Guatemala and Iran and Chile and Haiti and Ukraine another time. I mean, the U.S. has carried out so many coups around the world. The idea that this is a conspiracy theory shows that the New York Times is the one in an alternative reality where the U.S. doesn't carry out these kinds of coups. What's incredible is in a response I wrote to this New York Times attack, I even went through some of the New York Times' own reporting. They reported on this phone call, this leaked phone recording from Victoria Newland. They reported on it in multiple articles. They acknowledged that it's a real recording. They had U.S. government officials acknowledge in the New York Times that it's a real recording. Furthermore, they have several other articles admitting that the democratically elected president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, who was overthrown in this coup, he repeatedly referred to it as a coup. And the New York Times wrote articles in which they say that some Ukrainians consider it a coup. And they even wrote an article in which they say that the majority of people in Crimea considered it to be a fascist-led coup. That's not my language. That's the language of the New York Times itself. So back in 2014, I mean, they, they clearly were not exposing the role of the U.S. government in this coup, but they were obliquely acknowledging that it was a coup. And they admitted that, that Victoria Newland was 
in this legitimate recording, an authentic recording discussing who the leaders of the post-coup government will be. But this is allegedly a vast conspiracy theory eight years later. And it shows that the New York Times has a history of erasing facts that it itself reported several years ago. But when the political context changes, well, suddenly you can't acknowledge any of this history or you become an, an, an evil Russian disinformation asset. We have the audio tape of this conversation between Victoria Newland and the U.S. ambassador to Kiev at that time in 2014. So I just want to, again, frame it for the audience. There are protests that begin in October, November, December 2013 in the center of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. The protests are because Yanukovych had said no to an EU ultimatum that Ukraine, if it were interested in joining the EU, would join not as a full member, but as part of an association agreement. And the terms of the association agreement were extreme austerity, extreme, like the way the EU imposed on, on the Greeks. And Yanukovych, who was not, quote, pro-Russia, was for Ukraine being neutral, also corrupt, but democratically elected and pro-neutrality, he said no to that agreement, and then these protests started in Maidan. And I have said over and over again, I was surprised at the kind of passivity demonstrated by the Russian government in response to the protests that were starting to threaten Yanukovych. And I think the reason was that, that Putin was basically tied up with the Sochi Olympics that were taking place just before that. And the Russians were very concerned about whether there would be protests or, or stage-managed protests that would disrupt the Olympics. Anyway, for whatever reason, the Russians were not commenting much about the protests in, in October, November, December 2013. And at points, the protests seemed to cool down. They seemed to just be smaller and smaller and smaller. But then finally, they became very strong again in January and February. And you had Victoria Nuland, who was an assistant secretary of state, and prior to that had been Hillary Clinton's State Department spokesperson when Hillary Clinton became secretary of state. Victoria Nuland got her start as a foreign policy advisor for Dick Cheney, and the Democrats brought her in. Exactly. And she's married to Robert Kagan, who was the founder of the, the project for a new American century, the neocon team that became basically the Bush administration after 2000 one after the 2000 election. Anyway, she's in the square. She's literally handing out cookies, encouraging the protests. John McCain is also there, so it's a bipartisan affair, Democrats and Republicans. They actually love street protests. I've never seen any of them in protests in Washington, D.C. or in New York City or anywhere. They don't seem to care that much about the fight for justice, but they were in the square, like with the protests. And and John McCain is posing with the right sector people, the Azov Battalion people, the fascists, in other words. And finally, on February 21st, 2014, there was an agreement signed by Yanukovych and the protest leaders to end the protest. The protests had become more and more violent, violence on both sides. And, and Yanukovych agreed that the police would leave Maidan, they would leave the center of Kiev, and also he agreed that there would be early elections, which means he would probably lose, and that authority or power would be decentralized in Ukraine. In other words, he was meeting basically all the demands of the protesters, including removing the police. 
And that was an agreement that was signed between the protesters and Yanukovych. And the United States was also there. The United States was at that negotiating table as an observer, as were many, several European countries, and as was Russia. So there was an agreement, basically, to have new elections in Ukraine on the 21st. On the 22nd, the next day, Azov Battalion, right sector, the fascists stormed the parliament. They dispersed the parliament. They want to kill Yanukovych. He flees for his life. He leaves. And there's a new government. Now, all of this is the culmination of a protest process. We have the audio tape that you talked about, Ben, and that you described on CCTV that illuminates what the New York Times is now calling a conspiracy theory by you and the other conspiracy theorists about what actually happened in Ukraine. I want to play the audio clip so our audience can hear for itself what Victoria Nuland is doing. And when you hear the word, the words out of her mouth, it's got to be Yats. Yats. Yats is the guy. She's talking about a guy named Yatsenyuk, who in fact, right after the coup, becomes, as she demanded, the leader of Ukraine. Let's listen to this, a very famous audio clip, video. It's not a conspiracy. It's not possibly untrue. It's true. Let's listen. I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the U.N. help glue it and, you know, the EU. Okay. I'm so sad we had to bleep the FU, but I guess Breakthrough News is, you know, it's a family-oriented network. So anyway, she's actually talking about the EU and she says FU to the EU, meaning they're not going to determine who the new government in Ukraine is. We're going to determine it. She's going to determine it. And Ben, all the headlines after that, when this famous audio phone call was released, was about how Angela Merkel was upset when she said F the EU. But the real outrage in the media and in Europe was not about the fact that the U.S. government was going to decide who the new leader of Ukraine was after a coup d'etat that happens a week later or about a week later that deposes a democratically elected government. Yes, corrupt, but it was the byproduct of a democratic election. So here you have the democratic Assistant Secretary of State determining who the new leader of Ukraine is going to be after a coup, after we can glue this thing, as she puts it. And that's exactly what happened. The coup happened, they glued it, and Yatsenyuk became the new leader. That's absolutely right. And Brian, what this really reminds me of is that after every single coup or coup attempt, if you say the U.S. government was clearly involved in this, you're called a conspiracy theorist. And I can only imagine back in the 1950s when the CIA orchestrated the coup that overthrew Mohammad Mossadegh, the elected leader of Iran, after he nationalized Iran's oil reserves, or the U.S.-backed coup, the CIA coup against Salvador Allende in Chile in 1973, and even more recently, the U.S.-backed coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia in 2019. After all of those, anyone who said the U.S. was clearly involved in overthrowing a democratic leader 
you're called a conspiracy theorist. This is part of this smear campaign. And obviously, you know, there are really stupid conspiracy theories like QAnon and all of that, but there are also real conspiracies. And the CIA is the master of conspiracies. That's what the CIA has done for its entire history is organize conspiracies to act on behalf of U.S. capital, of Wall Street. And the CIA was created by bankers. The Dulles brothers were bankers. They were Wall Street lawyers. So the idea that this is a conspiracy theory is, of course, something we're very used to. I'm in Nicaragua right now. In 2018, the U.S. government backed a very violent coup attempt that began actually this week as the fourth anniversary in April of 2018. And still today, the idea that the U.S. government was involved in funding and supporting these right-wing extremists, violent forces behind the coup attempt in Nicaragua is still smeared as a so-called conspiracy theory, even though we have so much evidence. So it, it, goes, it goes to show that these media outlets, they simply exist, mainstream outlets like the New York Times, to reaffirm what the State Department says. I mean, they're basically unofficial state media. So unfortunately, it was not a huge surprise to me to see that the New York Times is attacking me in this ridiculous way. But the dishonesty is really striking. I mean, another thing about this, this article in the New York Times is they use this screenshot that you mentioned where I, my face is crossed out by a red line. That's a screenshot of a tweet that was posted by Frontline, which is this show of a Chinese media outlet, CCTV or CGTN. And that screenshot they used is a screenshot of a video clip, a one minute video clip of me talking about these facts mentioning the Victoria Newland phone call, mentioning yachts, mentioning the violent forces behind the coup in 2014. All of that was erased by the New York Times. They didn't mention Victoria Newland in the article. They didn't quote me. Instead, they used a screenshot of the video so people can't watch the video to listen to what I actually said in the video clip. So they're not even allowing their own readers to listen to what I was saying. It really goes to show also, I think, how the New York Times has this very infantile, very arrogant view of their own audience. They think that their own audience is so stupid and so ignorant, they can't listen to a one-minute video clip of an independent U.S. journalist, me, saying something on a Chinese media outlet because, oh, it's, it's evil foreign disinformation and, and it might you know rot their brains. It might cause them to, to become Russian agents or something. No, I mean, it's absolutely cartoonish, and it shows the level of the infantile propaganda that the New York Times and other outlets are feeding us. This is not journalism. This is straight-up new Cold War propaganda, and it's disinformation, which is exactly what they accuse Russian and Chinese media of spreading. Indeed, that is exactly what they accuse the Russian of. Matter of fact, this article says as much. I mean, the article in the New York Times says, there's an information war that the Russians and the Chinese are, are waging where they're turning diplomats and journalists into combatants in the information war. And I'm thinking like, well, what about the American journalists? What about the fact that if you go on a, on a TV outlet and talk about something that actually and obviously happened, why does the New York Times have to go after you, Ben Norton, and put a red line through your face and say that you're echoing Russian propaganda because you actually said something that's obviously true. And as we could see from the audio clip and the video clips, we know it's true. It's the same theme that you're talking about that in every time where the CIA carries out an operation, 
Americans don't even know how much is spent on intelligence operations and covert operations. That's hidden from the American people. But it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And they tried to assassinate Fidel over and over again, and they overthrow governments like the government in, in Iran, the Mozak Day government in 1953, or the Arbenz government in Guatemala in 54, and go on and on and on and on. And each and every time, as you said, if you argue that they are doing this, they're saying, well, you're fringe, you're on the extreme, the fact that you went on Chinese TV proves it. Well, I offer the New York Times a challenge. Let you, Ben Norton, or any of the other independent journalists, go on CNN regularly, go on MSNBC, be quoted frequently in the New York Times and the Washington Post. So, I mean, because right now you're completely, and all independent journalists, myself included, who were at one time in mainstream media regularly, I mean, often, were pushed out. We can't go on to mainstream media. As you said, the voices of the left, especially the anti-imperialist left or socialists or even just anti, consistently anti-war people, they're banished from the airwaves. But if you go on Chinese TV or Iranian TV or Russian TV, if you go on any TV, then you're a dupe and a traitor. So, okay, let's end this controversy by giving the left an opportunity to go on mainstream TV. But of course, that won't happen. And one final point about the way everybody is described later as a conspiracy theorist, when the New York Times wrote about, in its editorial, about the 1953 CIA and British intelligence coup d'etat against the democratically elected government in Iran that dared to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company, also known now as BP. This is what the New York Times actually said. Because, again, they said later, if you said that there was a, a CIA operation, this was throughout the 60s or 70s, they said that's a conspiracy theory. Here's what the New York Times actually wrote in its editorial about the coup d'etat in Iran. Underdeveloped countries with rich resources now have an object lesson in the heavy cost that must be paid by one of their number, which goes berserk with fanatical nationalism. So the New York Times was crowing about the coup d'etat, and they said, look, Guatemala, and look, Africa, look everywhere, look at third world, look at what happened to Iran, because you now have an object lesson in the heavy price that must be paid by one of your number who goes a berserk with fanaticism. Now, the, the way Mozak Day went berserk was he nationalized the oil profits so as to help Iranians come out of poverty. Iranians were starving, and all of the profits from their oil were going to London and Paris and the United States. I mean, again, later, and nobody will see this editorial in 1954, but that's how they really think. And it really says a lot but again, this is camouflage disguise concealed from the American people. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Brian. And we need to stress the role that the New York Times has played, specifically among all the major media outlets, the New York Times has played a key role in disseminating actual disinformation. That's what we're talking about here. The U.S. government keeps saying that Russian and Chinese media supposedly spread disinformation. Then what was the lie that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction? The whole WMD's lie is a classic textbook example of disinformation, fake news, 
a lie spread by a government as an act of information warfare to justify its aggression. But there's not just that. I mean, that, that's an easy case. The New York Times has so many examples, going back to the Spanish-American War to justify the U.S. taking over these colonies from Spain, going back to the Gulf of Tonkin incident, in which the New York Times accused Vietnamese communists of launching an aggressive war against the United States when it was, of course, the other way around, the U.S. that initiated that war. Or more recently, the first Iraq war in which the New York Times published multiple articles falsely claiming that Iraqi soldiers were taking Kuwaiti babies out of incubators. That was a total lie created by the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador, but spread loyally by the U.S. newspaper of record. And then, of course, there's also the lie that Muammar Gaddafi in Libya was giving Viagra to his soldiers, another blatant lie spread by the New York Times. And more recently, how many Russiagate stories ended up being complete lies, fabrications? Also, this whole thing called Bounty Gate, that Russian spies were allegedly paying the Taliban to kill U.S. soldiers occupying their country, as if the Taliban, the Afghan people, were not motivated to resist the 20-year military occupation. That story was later exposed as another complete lie, voluntarily spread by the New York Times. And then finally, probably the most hilarious example, a few months ago, is the New York Times publishing these ridiculous stories of so-called Havana syndrome, claiming that U.S. spies and diplomats, and really what's the difference, but U.S. spies and diplomats were having like these headaches. They felt that they were, were sick. And supposedly, the New York Times wanted us to believe that this was some kind of sophisticated sci-fi technology that Russia and China and or Cuba were attacking U.S. spies and diplomats with radio wave weapons and this new secret technology that they couldn't even show because it doesn't even exist. And of course, their so-called evidence was a recording and scientists analyzed the recording and it ended up being crickets. And then now the CIA and the State Department internal assessment have been leaked and these internal assessments from both agencies, both U.S. government agencies, admit that it was actually likely not caused by any foreign aggression. Rather, this is a case of mass hysteria. So the New York Times played a key role in spreading that disinformation, trying to blame Russia, China, and or Cuba, supposedly claiming that they were attacking U.S. diplomats, which is an act of war. So the New York Times has again and again shown that it is more than willing to spread actual conspiracy theories and actual disinformation when it serves U.S. imperialist interests and the interests of Wall Street. And then those of us who are independent journalists who expose those lies and disinformation, we are smeared as conspiracy theorists. And Brian, one other point here that I really want to stress, I think the reason they're doing this is, is quite transparent. This is part of a campaign to justify censorship of independent journalists, because there are, unfortunately, there are not that many people in the media, in English, challenging these lies and this disinformation spread by the US and NATO and the European Union. So systematically, these Western media outlets are working with governments and big tech corporations to try to find ways to censor the few dissenting voices that have platforms on social media. And that's why I think the New York Times published this article. It came the same day on April 11th when the Washington Post editorial board, the editorial board of one of the major U.S. newspapers whose slogan is democracy dies in darkness, published an editorial 
openly calling for social media platforms to censor, to remove all Chinese media outlets, just as they've already done to Russian media outlets and to Iranian media outlets. So we see the Washington Post on the same day openly calling for censoring Chinese media. And then we see the New York Times try to link me to supposed disinformation, which is actually not disinformation, published by Russian and Chinese media. I think it's quite clear that this is a campaign trying to absurdly, spuriously link me to the Chinese and Russian governments with a total distortion to try to claim that I'm supposedly spreading Russian and Chinese disinformation to justify censoring me so they can justify censoring a U.S. citizen and an independent journalist who has no links to any state media. What this really shows is this McCarthyism we're talking about bleeding to targeting U.S. citizens themselves because we've already seen the massive deplatforming of Russians and Chinese people and, and Iranians and Nicaraguans and Venezuelans, and they're going after U.S. citizens now. And anyone who dares to challenge their monopoly, the chokehold that the U.S. government and its media mouthpieces have on our access to information, Right. The point where you become censored or are threatened with censorship, and I think it's extremely important for people to understand how witch hunting works, because when people have to start to watch their words, because the, the censorious outlines are broad and vaguely worded, they were like, if you minimize the suffering of Ukrainians, if you in any way blame, quote, Ukrainians for the war, then you're likely to be either shut down or banned or, you know, the algorithm slowed. There will be different means by which you'll be expelled. Then you start to watch your words because what does it mean to, say, minimize Ukrainians or if you do victim blaming, like the Ukrainians are the victims. And so if you tell the story, that there are some Ukrainians who participated in a coup d'etat in 2014 and installed a far-right government that canceled Ukrainian neutrality and started the process by which the Ukraine would either be integrated into NATO formally or, if not formally, to de facto, in reality, become a staging ground for advanced U.S. weapons if you say any of those things contributed to the current crises, then you're, quote, blaming or seem to be blaming Ukrainians when what you're really doing is saying, how did this war happen? The war started when Russia invaded on February 24th, but why did Russia not invade earlier? I mean, Putin has been the leader of Russia for 20 years. Obviously, this decision taken by the Russian government, which we have not supported. We haven't said, yes, this was a good decision. This was taken at a point or as a culmination of a longer process. Well, what was that process? The process obviously was that Ukraine was ending or has ended the period after 1991, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, after the dismemberment of the Soviet Union, where Ukraine, which had been part of the Soviet Union with Russia and the second biggest republic in the Soviet Union, became independent. And between 1991 and 2014, even though there were different governments, lots of elections, some were more pro-Russia and more, some were more pro-EU, it was essentially an, a neutral country. 
And when the United States at the NATO meeting in Bucharest in 2018 announced that the U.S. intended to incorporate Georgia and Ukraine into NATO, the Russians made a big deal about that's a bad idea. They're not going to accept it. The Germans and the French opposed it because they knew it would be not just kindling for a fire, it would be pouring gasoline on a fire that it would likely lead to a military clash. So if you tell the story that everything changes really with Ukraine in 2014 and there was a coup and fascist forces, which were not the majority of people in the Maidan protest, but were certainly a factor, were the muscle that really led to the coup. They were the physical force and they even brag about it. They say, yes, we were... 8% or 10% of the population protesting, but we were the decisive 10% because we had the will and the desire and the organization and the capacity to use violence and the willingness to use violence. And so we were the decisive minority. If you tell this actual story, then you can be accused of minimizing the suffering of Ukrainians or blaming the victim because if you talk about the role of some political forces in Ukraine to end the status of Ukraine as a neutral country, you're blaming the victim. So in other words, you can only be free of censorship is if you either don't tell the truth or you don't speak. Your options become don't tell the truth or silence. Which do you prefer? Because if you speak and tell the truth, you're crossing the red line for the censor. Absolutely, Brian. I 100% I agree with everything you said, except one little small detail, which is part of this. You said that, that Russia started the war on February 24th, and definitely Russia deserves credit for escalating the war. Russia absolutely poured fuel on the fire by escalating this war. But it actually, this war has gone on for eight years, and you can't even acknowledge that historical context because then again, as you said, you'll be accused of blaming the victim, and you can be censored. I mean, what's incredible is the United Nations itself published a report earlier this year before Russia invaded, before the escalation of the war in Ukraine. And the United Nations said that 14,000 Ukrainians died in the past eight years. So after the U.S.-backed coup in 2014 caused a civil war, which led to people in the eastern part of the Donbass of Ukraine and also Crimea rising up against the coup regime, that set off a civil war. And this is exactly the kind of civil war that U.S. ambassador to Russia and now current CIA director William Burns warned about in a 2008 embassy cable in which he said, look, if Ukraine joins NATO, this could force Russia to intervene and could set off a civil war. That's exactly what happened. And the United Nations itself published a report earlier this year saying that 14,000 Ukrainians died in those eight years of civil war. And they also said that in the, the last four years, before Russia invaded, that 81% of civilian casualties were in the Donbass. That is to say, the Ukrainian government and the paramilitary forces it sponsors with the backing of the West was responsible for over four-fifths of civilian casualties in the past four years of the civil war in Ukraine. This isn't to mention the millions of Ukrainians who were displaced before Russia invaded. Of course, Russia has made the situation even worse and there's massive displacement and refugees and more deaths. But the point I wanted to make is that if you acknowledge that history by citing the United Nations itself, you can be accused of supposedly blaming the victim 
And that could be justification for censorship on social media. And this is not some crazy idea that we have. Scott Ritter, who is an important former UN arms inspector and a former US military officer who did US military intelligence. This is a US veteran. He was censored on Twitter. He had a large platform. He was censored on Twitter for tweeting information and opinions about the war in Ukraine that the US government doesn't like. And they decided to, Twitter decided to erase him, to remove him from this important public platform that people around the world use to spread information, to communicate, that governments around the world use. Twitter is basically, it is a public good that the entire world uses. And people say, well, this is a private platform, it's a private company. But no, I mean, these large big tech corporations have become absolutely integrated into daily life. People use them to do business. People use them to communicate with their family members. I'm a journalist. Social media outlets are a key part of my work as a journalist. And they are now these big tech corporations, which many of which are contractors with the US government. Google is a CIA and Pentagon contractor. They are not only erasing Russian media outlets, Chinese media outlets, Iranian media outlets. They are erasing US citizens who dare to challenge the NATO propaganda narrative on Ukraine. One of the things that you pointed out in your article about this whole recent attack against you by the New York Times, and people can find that article at MR Online, Monthly Review Online. That's one of the places. There may be others. Again, of course, your own website, multipolarista.com. But you make the point that the New York Times, and you alluded to this in the beginning, but you quote the the journalist who was actually saying the same things that you are now saying in the New York Times back in 2014 when he was covering the coup. And at that time, before the war has broken out, now you're right, the war didn't just start on February 24th, but the war actually did enter a decisive stage with a large-scale Russian invasion on February 24th. My point here is that everything has shifted so that while you could talk a little bit and tell the truth before the Russian invasion, if you try to tell the truth now when the U.S. is basically treating Ukraine as a proxy war where the United States is using Ukrainians and the Ukrainian army as a way of fighting Russia because it's U.S. military coordinated, U.S. intelligence is coordinating, it's U.S. weapons are pouring into Ukraine. You listen to Coons, the senator who, Democratic Senator Coons, he's demanding U.S. troops go to Ukraine. All of the U.S. politicians are making the argument, not all, but many are making the argument, we don't want a negotiated settlement at the moment, we want to win, we want to defeat the Russians. Under these new circumstances since February 24th, if you say the same things that people were saying, including what the New York Times was saying in February 2014 or about the coup in February 2014, now you're listed as an agent of the enemy. But again, just talk real briefly, and then I want to go as we start to wrap up, about how the New York Times reporter himself talked about Maidan exactly in the way that you're talking about it. Absolutely. Well, I went through this just to show the hypocrisy of the New York Times. This is an article, a line from an article that was published back on February 22nd, 2014. The New York Times quoted Yanukovych, who was the elected president of Ukraine, who was overthrown. 
And this is in the New York Times. This is Yanukovych saying, quote, I am a legitimately elected president. What is happening today mostly, it is vandalism, banditism, and a coup d'etat. And that article in the New York Times was titled, With President's Departure, Ukraine Looks Toward a Murky Future. And yes, unfortunately, the future was quite murky. And then on February 27th, the New York Times published an article, a follow-up article, in which it, it this, is, this is a quote from the New York Times in February 2014, quote, Crimea, where a heavily ethnic Russian and Russian-speaking population mostly views the Ukrainian government installed after the ouster last weekend of Mr. Yanukovych as the illegitimate result of a fascist coup. That is the New York Times admitting that they say the population mostly in Crimea, that is the majority of people in Crimea, view the overthrow of Yanukovych as, quote, the illegitimate result of a fascist coup. Now, if you say that now, then it's called Russian disinformation. So back in 2014, was the New York Times spreading Russian disinformation? And here's another article from the New York Times in March 17th, 2014. And they say, they admit in the New York Times that, quote, many Ukrainians who saw demonstrators in the Capitol chase President Viktor Yanukovych from office last month in what some in the country regard as a justified uprising and others call a coup, wondered what part of Ukraine might remain day by day under the interim government's control. So they admit that Ukraine was divided. And yes, some people considered it an uprising, but others called it a coup. Then this is the New York Times admitting that, not RT. And then they also admit that now there are parts of Ukraine that were falling out of the control of the central government after the coup. So if you acknowledge these facts that the New York Times published back in February and March 2014, today in 2022, you can be called a conspiracy theorist and you can be called an agent of Russian disinformation. What changed, of course, what changed is the CIA director, William Burns, said it clearly in March, in a Senate intelligence hearing, he said the U.S. is waging an information war against Russia. And he claimed, he boasted, that the U.S. is winning that war against Russia, the information war against Russia. So we see very clearly an example of this U.S. government information war. Okay, I want to go to our final point, and it's connected, very connected to this issue of free speech and dissent, which is being you know, the witch hunt is starting. I, I really hope people don't succumb to the witch hunt. We can acknowledge it, but we shouldn't be intimidated. We should keep telling the truth. That's our job. We should keep organizing for the truth. We should keep organizing to end the war. The way to end the war is to go back to the negotiating table and say yes instead of no to Russia's legitimate security concerns, which would be America's security concerns too if Russia did what the U.S. is trying to do to Russia, which is to put nuclear missiles on Russia's border in states, countries that will be permanently under U.S. control, because that's what it means to be a NATO country. If you want peace for Ukraine, if you want the suffering to end, go to the negotiating table and have an agreement that Ukraine will be neutral. That could be the end of the war. That would actually end it right away. But instead, the voices are escalating that the U.S. must win the war. So it's just like the early part of the Cold War when the Communist Party and everybody who spoke out for peace with the Soviet Union, 
the so-called doves, you know, they were all labeled as a fifth column working to undermine American vigilance against the Soviet Union and the socialist camp. So you had HUAC and you had the, the shutdown of the Communist Party. In 1945, the Communist Party had about 100,000 members. And by 1955, it was about 5,000 because of the brutality of the witch hunt. You know, we learned from other movies in the 1970s, ooh, the witch hunt was a terrible period of American history. We should never go back to it. You know, that's when freedom of speech was suppressed. You know, people were criminalized, demonized, fired, forced into exile, not because of what they had done, but because of what they believed. The leaders, as I mentioned, of the Communist Party were sent to prison, some of them for 12 years, not because of what they did, but because they were communists. We were taught in the 1970s, we can never go back there. But now that the war is on, now that the U.S. wants to, quote, win the war, not end the war, but to win the war, the voices of those who are saying, no, this is a catastrophe in the making. It's already a catastrophe for Ukrainians, but a global war with the, between the United States and Russia? Like now, if you start to say that, are you blocking with Russia? Are you part of the enemy again? And right now, I feel the danger is not only the free speech, but I think the danger of escalation is very, very real. Because if the U.S. has said we must win the war and the Russians, a nuclear power, are saying we're not going to be defeated and yet they can't win, one side or the other or perhaps both will climb the escalation ladder. And both sides have nuclear weapons. And for people who don't think this is serious, who trivialize the danger of escalation, you have another thing coming because I believe that, in fact, is on the order of the day. All the more reason, Ben, that people who are telling the truth because they want peace, they're not just telling the truth because we're like interested observers on the sidelines because we're pundits. We're people who want to change the world. We want peace. We want to end militarism and war. We want to spend $800 billion that's spent for death and destruction right now. That's the U.S. military budget, the so-called defense budget. Spend that for Medicaid expansion. Spend it to for child tax credits, all the things the U.S. government now says can't be afforded. Affordable housing, like to end poverty. Childhood poverty spiked by 41% in the month of January because the U.S. ended the emergency programs, COVID relief programs for poor people. Like, we have to face the fact that as the U.S. is escalating the war and the, the only voices you're hearing in the mainstream media are calling for more war, more war, escalate, send troops, no-fly zone, that the truth-telling becomes a matter of existential importance for the American people. So it's not simply about what happens to Ben Norton or what happens to the socialist program or breakthrough news. It's really the stakes are about war and peace on a global level. Anyway, Ben, I'll give you the last word. That's absolutely right, Brian. I mean, we saw this illustrated so clearly when the Biden administration canceled the money that it was going to spend for COVID relief. Meanwhile, COVID is still happening. I mean, Americans are still dying. We're nearing 1 million deaths and everyone's focused, not everyone, the corporate media is focused instead on escalating this war in Ukraine while Americans continue to die. And the Biden administration canceled that COVID relief funding and then basically used the same money to send military assistance to Ukraine. $13.6 billion in U.S. so-called aid to Ukraine 
half of which is military. We're talking about billions of dollars of weapons and military support to escalate this war, along with the military spending by other Western governments in Europe. So the U.S. keeps wagging its finger at Russia and saying, you know, Russia is to blame. And certainly Russia, like I said, it does deserve part of the blame for escalating this war. But the U.S. is the one that started this war back in 2014 and has continued to fuel it throughout from 2014 until today, until Russia invaded in February of 2022. The U.S. spent billions of dollars arming and training the Ukrainian military, paramilitary groups. And we now have evidence, we have admissions, articles in, the, in Yahoo News that the CIA has been training Ukrainian paramilitary fighters to kill Russians, as they say. That's the exact language. A CIA officer said the goal was to, quote, kill Russians. So the U.S. acts as though this is a one-sided war, but it's not a one-sided war. It is an international war. It is as Elliot Cohen, a hardcore right-wing former State Department official, admitted in an article in The Atlantic magazine. He boasted that the U.S. and NATO are waging a proxy war on Russia via Ukraine. He boasted of that. And now we see multiple, not just the U.S. government, multiple Western governments escalating this conflict. We saw the Ukrainian foreign minister just met with NATO, the foreign ministers of NATO at NATO headquarters in Brussels. And the Ukrainian foreign minister said this. He said, what we need are three things, weapons, weapons, and weapons. That's what he said. So we see a constant attempt to escalate it. Meanwhile, on the Ukrainian side, there have been assassinations, murders of Ukrainians who were involved in the peace negotiations with Russia. So there's a clear message being sent to the Ukrainian people. If you say the solution to this conflict, to this war, is peace, is a diplomatic settlement, then you could be executed. You could be murdered. So This is a really terrifying situation, considering what you said, Brian, of the possibility of escalation to a potential nuclear exchange. Meanwhile, outside of the US, Canada, and Western Europe, people across the world, in the majority of global population in the global south, as you all have covered at Breakthrough News very well, they see this conflict very differently. They see from half of the nations in Africa, China, India, Pakistan, and India and Pakistan never agree on anything, along with South Africa. I I mean, I I mentioned Africa playing a role, but South Africa being a leader in Africa, along with many countries in Latin America, they have all said very similar things. They have said that the U.S. and NATO bear responsibility for starting this war, and the only solution is a political solution. Ukraine needs to abide by the Minsk II Accords that it refused to abide by under pressure by the U.S. The eastern region of the Donbass needs autonomy. Crimea, the people of Crimea voted to be part of Russia. The Ukrainian government has constantly said, even before Russia invaded, Zelensky said they were going to militarily retake Crimea, which is insanity. So the reality is there needs to be a political settlement diplomatic settlement. And of course, Russia also needs to be part of that diplomatic settlement. They can end their war and go to the peace talks, which have been going on, although the Western powers are trying to sabotage those peace talks. That is the only solution. But unfortunately, we see that the Western media outlets that act as handmaidens and stenographers for Western governments, they continuously spread this propaganda saying that 
The evil boogeymen in the Kremlin bear 100% of the responsibility, not part, 100% of the responsibility. The Western powers are these angelic, democracy-loving, benevolent actors, and they have no responsibility. And the solution is a military defeat. As Joseph Burrell, the foreign, basically the foreign minister of the EU, the top foreign policy official for the EU, he said the solution to this conflict must be a military solution. That means that NATO and the EU are calling for defeating the Russian military. That is insanity. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Ben Norton, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.